It'll never end until uh, Jim Nance doesn't find himself thinking of Augusta 24-7. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is April 13th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Good. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. You know, great job uh, by you and uh, I suppose by me, by association at the Sloan Conference <laughs> over the weekend. We emceed the news desk uh, and had a little hot takedown tag team for at least some of it. Yeah, I know. I was I was remembering last year's Sloan Conference, which is, you know, like the last normal thing that happened in my life before. Oh, you uh, mean uh, last year's Sloan super spreader event? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Um, that's, uh, I think we're legally not allowed to call it that. Um, that'll all get cut. (laughs) That other voice you hear is Jeff Foster. How's it going, Jeff? It's going well. Um, thank you for not inviting me to Sloan. I appreciate that. I actually thought you would, yeah, you would prefer that. Yeah, no, <laughs> Jeff, wasn't. you're not being sarcastic. No, I would actually think it's not even being told it's going on. But no, it's fine. I love Sloan. Great people there. Boston's great. I'm not being sarcastic. Maybe oh, I boy. am. Oh, my. Uh, <laughs> so, hey, the Masters were uh, yeah. wrapped up on Sunday. That was a, a thing that happened. It we was... all picked Matsuyama to win. Yeah. I would just want to. <laughs> say briefly how very very wrong my predictions were not only did rory not you know sniff the green jacket he also hit a ball so badly that it hit a spectator who was his dad he hit his own dad (laughs) with a ball (laughs) that was amazing he is i i don't know what is going on there i mean he's just adrift Um, But look, my pick was equally bad. I picked Bryson. I thought he would go back in the lab and like fix Augusta. It turns out like Augusta might be Bryson kryptonite. Like he just looks lost. He looks uncomfortable and miserable out there. And because there's no, you know, and this is the part I didn't think of because there's none of that long rough that you see that he just like Hulk power smashes through and gives (laughs) him an advantage because you don't have that. He kind of takes away as an advantage. Yeah. I did enjoy you kind of trying to will him into, you're like, oh, Bryson's doing better today on, like, Friday. It's like, well, yes. <laughs> well, I did. Yeah, I did. I, mean, I just didn't want him to miss the cut. That would be embarrassing, like Rory. <laughs> like Rory did. Well, I was going to say, I'm feeling good because uh, Morikawa finished the highest of any of our uh, personal yeah. picks, although he, he was uh, 18th. But he, he came on stronger as the tournament went on. But we should have seen we should have seen Matsuyama coming because he ranked always perennially ranks really high in that approach stat that we were talking about. Yeah, uh, over the too. yeah going into he the week. He can't putt. He can't putt. He can't putt, and it didn't matter. He was it third. Doesn't matter. That's and this the is thing. what we were saying last week. Also, he was third in putts per green in regulation in the field this weekend. Uh, and usually to win a tournament, you have to be you know if not outright first in that really high. Uh, uh, and and yeah, he had shown no signs of that. Putting is random from tournament to tournament. All you need to look at is strokes T to green, and then you know whoever gets lucky with the with the putter wins. That's my theory of golf. I think when the putting is so difficult and you can't putt like Matsuyama, it kind of neutralizes it. It's not it's not as much of a weakness. Everyone's struggling out there, and I think yeah. that's kind of what happened. And 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 our boy Spieth, 
He did putt bad. He putted bad. I mean, he would have won with a little bit better putting or a better decision making when he hits it in the woods on the first day and decides to punch it out through the woods. Like, was I playing for a second there? That was a terrible idea. <laughs> he did, though. I mean, he did acquit himself well. I mean, he he's back, right? I think we can yeah, say that. Oh, he's, sure he's back, but back. I'm saying this, yeah. he could have easily won this. And I think in a lot of ways that triple bogey on the first day where he just, like, kind of recklessly didn't listen to his caddy, um... Might have cost him, and also he wasn't putting great, but yeah, he is back. But congrats to Matsuyama. I was happy for him. I like him. All right. On today's show, we'll check in on the start of the baseball season, which teams have struggled, which have shown promise, and which have forgotten to check their weather apps. Then we'll preview what to look forward to in this week's WNBA draft. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. We're almost two weeks into MLB's regular season, and there have already been a few surprises in the baseball landscape. The Braves started 0-4 and picked up another loss over the weekend after a pretty terrible replay review against the Phillies. The Red Sox started the season getting swept by the Orioles before rallying for six straight wins, three of those also against the Orioles. And the Mets have perhaps learned a valuable lesson about what happens when you try to play in the rain. Hey, they got a good seven minutes in. <laughs> it was an important seven minutes, minutes too. We wanted to start with a game that was postponed for a different reason. On Monday, the Minnesota Twins postponed their game against the Boston Red Sox in the aftermath of the police shooting of 20-year-old Dante Wright. The Minnesota Timberwolves and Wild also postponed their Monday games. Derek Falvey, the president of baseball operations for the Twins, went on MLB Tonight to talk about the decision. The timing of this, and as we were working through it, you know, we we're learning as much information as we could throughout the morning. And then ultimately there was a press conference and some, and some more details that were released. The, the situation was continuing to evolve. And we just felt that as an organization and through the course of the conversations with ownership, with local authorities, with local government officials as well, just in the and out of respect to to Mr. Wright's family and ultimately to uh, for the uh, for everybody within our organization, for our fans, for everybody, we thought this was the best decision moving forward. So last year, as part of the protests of George Floyd's death, we had cross league game postponements as well. Jeff, what can we draw out here about how baseball organizations are handling? police brutality flashpoints like like what's happening in Minneapolis is this do we think this is the response this is what the response is going to look like for teams and leagues moving forward yeah I I think it is I mean Minnesota is a particular case because that's you know obviously where the um the murder of Floyd was so there they were you know right in the middle of it again so I think it was a no-brainer decision for the twins and I think you know it (laughs) This is how they're going to respond. And I think this is, if they hadn't responded this way, I think you would have seen a whole host of players wanting to sit down and, and going to protest. And you even heard some of that from players, you know, not in the Minnesota game. So, yeah, I, I think it's the right response. I mean, the, you could begin to question whether, you know, the pendulum will swing, pendulum will swing too far. I, I don't think so. I think it was a very appropriate to cancel the game. And it, I'm thoroughly not surprising. What did, what did you think as someone who's, you know, connected to that team and that community. I think it would have been pretty strange to, to to play the game. I mean, I think, you know, there's always a little bit of um, disconnect between sports and the real world. We've obviously seen that all year with the pandemic, but I think playing a game while there are 
huge, you know, protests and, uh, you know, huge protests going on. And this is all in the backdrop of the trial happening for Derek Chauvin right now um, in in George Floyd's killing. So I think I think it was the right choice, I think, for both for, you know, the the look of it, the optics of it, the feeling of, you know, making those players take the field while this was all going on. Also for the safety of players, fans, people downtown. Like, I think I think it's the that's the right thing for the teams to do. They have to see themselves as part of the broader community. I mean, they have to. They are part of the broader community. Well, and also this wasn't a an issue for the Twins game because it was in the afternoon. Uh, but certainly for the games at night, there was also a curfew in place. So it would have been sort of, you know, not not clear how they would have actually even had the games play out because of that. And so I think that that was part of it. Um, I also think that MLB has kind of painted themselves into this corner going this direction because of things like moving the All-Star game where sort of, you know, they they have kind of decided to uh to to take that side of the political spectrum into account and you know they they kind of have to keep going in that direction now uh or else there will be more backlash against them or they'll look inconsistent like we talked about in the rabbit hole last week yeah i mean you know they the twins have like a justice for floyd you know decal on the on the outfield which i actually saw and thought that is really interesting coming during a trial about his death like what to to take a stance like that which like historically baseball teams have not wanted to take stances like that and so i think i think you're right once you take that stance you really have to you have to take it you have to stay with it or you seem like you're just pandering which is you know, it's hard to know what teams and leagues are doing what now, they did did rob manfred go to the masters after all <laughs> that was the big question <laughs> I don't. I didn't actually see whether he did or not. Yeah, I didn't see him there. I didn't hear anything about it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you you do really risk um, looking super hypocritical if you don't if you don't stay down stay on that path. So let's uh, let's turn to talk about what's happened so far in the baseball season, um, and you know what's going on with some of the the teams that we have thought might be contenders this year. A few of those teams have have had really uneven starts to the season. The A's, the White Sox, and the Braves all struggled some out of the gate. Neil, how dire are things for those teams? Does a bad start doom a team? Well, you know, we always talk about small samples early in the season, and I, I don't even think they've played two weeks so far. So in that sense, it's sort of really tough to make generalizations and, and kind of conclusions about how a team will play down the line. But it is interesting how quickly things like playoff odds can shift just on the basis of a couple weeks of play. Like, for instance, you mentioned the A's. They're down to a 26% chance to make the playoffs. Now, they won three straight and four of their last five, but they started really, really rough. Uh, and some of those were head-to-head games against uh, the Astros, who are modeled thought was the favorite already going into the season and the Astros have looked pretty good I mean they've lost three straight lost to Detroit and you never want to do that Um, (laughs) but they have a 79% chance to make the playoffs so you can kind of see the way that those go but then the Braves are another counterexample where they're up to 43% chance to make the playoffs in a really tough division despite losing so many games to start the season in a row and they've kind of you know shown signs since then of of 
you know, what they're truly capable of doing, especially Ronald Acuna is playing great. I think he's uh, leads all position players and wins above replacement. So, you know, there, there are so many ups and downs and I just love this phase of the baseball season where we know we shouldn't jump to conclusions. We know <laughs> this, we know better than this. And yet at the same time, we so badly want to, I want to, I definitely just want jump. to jump just to conclusions. Jump, jump to them, Neil. We so want to hear your The Cincinnati jumps. Reds clearly going to win the Best World Series. Best team in baseball. Uh, <laughs> Best team in baseball. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I think that there are, um, I would be curious what you guys think are the ones that have like the staying power. Cause I like the Reds. You know, I think that um, one of the big questions about them going into the season that we had was about their offense. They've hit great so far this season. You know, if they can kind of keep that up, uh, that was really the big question mark about them, um, that maybe they'll be a lot better than we think. But I don't know. What are your favorite uh, breakout teams that that will stick around based on what you've seen so far? I think we all had uh, Tyler Naquin as like one of the, you know, best uh, best players of the year so far. You know, the Reds are, we actually thought the Reds might be a breakout team last year. And then, you know, they had quite a bit of roster turnover and now they're looking good this year. So uh, baseball is random and I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think the A's are done. I think that was a really ugly start, but I think they have righted the ship. I, I thought the Red Sox were going to be better. I was a little, you know, surprised when they came out so flat, but now... You know, J.D. Martinez, after that big game, seems to be J.D. Martinez again, which is very good for them. Um, It kind of makes me think how much 2020 was just kind of an aberration that can be some of those, you know, off performances or even some of those, you know, strong performances. It it was just such a weird season that, you know, I don't know if we want to read too much into what happened last year. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're joking about small sample sizes in the first two weeks of this season. Really, all of last season was a small sample size. And yeah, we're already, uh, at, you know, the teams have played 10 games or whatever. That's like a sixth of how yeah. long all of last season was. And we're calling this like, oh, well, let's pump the brakes a little bit. It's only been two weeks. Last season was only, what, two months? Yeah. And, and yet the Mets have played half that. That is true. <laughs> And their fan base is in a full-on panic. Their fan base is always in a full-on panic. Well, that's though. true. That's true. Yeah. That's just their kind of resting state. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but no, but they've done nothing to uh, alleviate the panic so far <laughs> by going two and three and and losing two games where Jacob Degrom pitched a gem, which you again know, you also don't want, very on brand. Want... Yeah. This is <laughs> nothing has changed. No. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I think it's funny, like uh, for the teams that are it's interesting to talk about, like the early season trends when we're talking about my team. It's like every loss does like put me into a panic. And I have to remember, I have to adjust my thinking again for the longer season this year that the games aren't worth as much. And like there will be, uh, you know, unfortunate blown saves and there will be extra inning debacles oh yes right the extra inning rule can we just get rid of it i hate yeah, it the twins like have it been victimized quite they a bit like by that oh it's so bad um hey but we've also had a no hitter uh, early yes. in the season what which is, is that yeah i mean we have there were there are always like a couple of like near no hitters right away and there were there were a couple early in this season that like went you know went into the late innings but didn't quite make it but then joe musgrove threw a an almost perfect game at petco park last friday against the rangers the first no hitter in padres history which means now that every current major league team has thrown a no hitter very exciting we did it 
<laughs> we did it. Good job, guys. <laughs> yeah, and only and like half an... of those were against the twins. <laughs> yeah, the April no hitter. Uh, we were kind of speculating about when no hitters would happen, uh, and so I found uh, some research from this uh, blog called Sports Stats on Tap. T A P P. I think that's the person's name, and they found that <laughs> oh. since 1901, the month with the most no hitters was September with 57, oh. followed by May with 43, June with 41, and then April and July tied at 34 apiece. Uh, huh. August among months where like actual you know amounts of games are played, August had the fewest. But I was a little surprised by that because we know that offense tends to kind of, no pun intended, heat up as the season goes on, as the summer, you know, uh, temperatures rise. It, it makes it um, uh, more conducive to hitting the ball. Uh, so I was a little surprised that there weren't aren't more no hitters in April when things are still relatively cool. I'm not surprised there's the most in September. That makes sense because you have colder temperatures up. coming back and you have these expanded rosters and you also have teams that are just, you know, mailing it in trying oh, to completely. get through the month. So that, I'm going to swing at everything this game. I don't even know why hotel. I'm out here, to be honest. <laughs> I, I am surprised that there aren't because that it feels like the narrative is that there are a lot in April. So this is like, this is great. This is a perfect hot takedown example of taking down the hot take of there are a lot of no hitters in April. So, so thank you for the that. The cold Neil. weather hot take. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I like that, that early this season, some divisions are exactly what we thought they would be like the NLS, like the NLS looks exactly like what we, we figured. And then there are these other divisions where things are sort of like just random, like the AL East with the Red Sox ahead and everyone else like just bunched right in the middle, right? <laughs> so are the Red Sox back, Neil? Are we are we thinking they're back? Yeah, it feels like the Red Sox are doing that thing again where they have a horrible season and then immediately bounce back and become contenders again. Uh, so we'll we'll see if that holds up. Uh, for what it's worth, our model our model takes. I think we talked about this last year and and two years ago. Our model takes a long time to like calibrate to what it thinks it knows about each team so it still has the red sox only winning 82 games uh right now but i think s some of that changes really quickly to your point jeff if jd martinez and rafael devers and some of the guys that had down years last year are playing like themselves again and that's going to be one of the themes is yeah we don't know how much weight to put on last year uh when we're talking about like comparing expectations versus reality versus how soon do we know whether someone is going to be good versus not good but especially after a year like last year we're gonna be like recalibrating ourselves constantly and maybe like in some ways we can calibrate ourselves earlier to 2021 because 2020 means less so like we will we'll know that what we're seeing is more real earlier in 2021 because like we put less emphasis on what we thought we knew going into 2021 if that makes sense yeah that's i think that's a funny way to think about it like we we <laughs> these small samples are so weird because like the red sox lose three to the Orioles and the sky is falling. Then they win three against the Orioles and they're the best team ever. They also won three against the Rays. So there's a right. Little... <laughs> I think the Rays one maybe had maybe. a little more right. importance. But like we we don't know enough about the Rays or the Orioles to really know how much these games matter. And also any game can have, you know, weird results because baseball is, is weird. I mean, J J.D. Martinez, just his season last year was such 
it's such an anomaly. I mean, he had seven home runs. He's already got five this year. <laughs> so that's good. I do think that division is, I mean, Baltimore, we joke, but they, they were a little bit better. I mean, they got some, you know, interesting, exciting hitters on their team. And the Rays are what they are. And the, the Blue Jays are still, you know, a dangerous team. Vlad Guerrero Jr. looks great. So that division could just cannibalize itself all year. It wouldn't surprise me. And frankly, the team I'm kind of most worried about, and when I say worry, I mean not worry at all. <laughs> but if I was their, uh, one of their fans, I would be worried about is the Yankees. Um, <laughs> because I just don't know where they're going to get pitching this year. I mean, Garrett Cole obviously is awesome and elite. But beyond that, there's they, they have pitching issues. Corey Kluber does not look like an effective pitcher anymore. Domingo German, who, well, I don't want to get into his whole history, but they already sent him down to the minors. He looks completely ineffective. Montgomery's erratic. I just, I mean, we're talking about Jamison Talion as their second best starter. It's not great considering that division and who they have to play all those games against. Yeah, they, they are a whole interesting thing. I mean, I think you're right that, like, there's a part of me that's like, okay, cool. <laughs> Maybe the Twins can lose to someone else in the in the playoffs. That's exciting. No, that'll never happen. <laughs> um, yeah, with Kluber, I think it's also, like, remember when they signed him? They signed him on the basis of, I think he did, like, a tryout uh, for scouts in, like, I don't know when it was, December, January, something like that. Uh, and the scouts were just so wowed by watching him throw uh, I don't even know if it was a simulated game. I think he just went out to a mound and threw some, and they were like, "Sign me up!" And it's like, <laughs> eh, you know, this guy maybe, you know, with a, he's he's 35, long injury history, wasn't effective for the past few years. The last time he pitched, maybe that should weigh more than watching him pitch one afternoon in you know <laughs> pre uh, like uh, pristine conditions or something like that. I don't know. I'm no major league scout though, so. <laughs> What do I know? <laughs> true, true. I'm just surprised they didn't go out and get Bauer or Darvish or someone else. I, I think by Yankee standards, that would have made a lot of sense. And, and I think they're probably regretting it at this point. But I don't know. I mean, long season. We'll see. It, 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 some of these guys like Montgomery could be better. Yeah, well, you're right. It is a long season and, and there's plenty of time for all of these narratives to work themselves out. But for the moment, I'm going to bask in small sample size. <laughs> Byron Buxton. The Byron Buxton small sample size. uh, We love to see it. Yes. Okay. Read my story about him on the site today. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We can leave this here for now. We'll take a break and then come back to talk about the WNBA. We've barely had time to catch our breath from the NCAA tournament, and it's already time for WNBA teams to choose their next players among the standouts of the women's college game. The WNBA draft will be Thursday night, airing on ESPN. The teams that will likely have the busiest night are the Dallas Wings, who have an amazing four first-round draft picks, and the Indiana Fever, who have six overall picks. Meanwhile, the Minnesota Lynx have only one pick, the ninth, and the Washington Mystics have no draft picks at all. While this year's draft class doesn't have as many marquee names as last year's, it is packed. On the Locked On Women's Basketball podcast, Erica Ayala talked about just how little opportunity there is in the WNBA relative to the number of players who declared for the draft. 
to give you a little bit of context, there are 144 roster spots at any given time in the WNBA. Obviously, more players will cycle in and out than 144, but there are 144 roster spots. 57 players are entering the draft. Out of the three rounds, only 36 players will be drafted. And uh, this is coming from Cameo Williams at KC Premier Ball. Only 16 of the 36 even made the team last year. Now, last year, we didn't really get uh, the opportunity to even see these prospects and anyone that was invited to training camp because of COVID. So the numbers are really, the math is a little bit, auntie got some questions. I I just don't know what's going to happen, y'all. We need more WNBA teams is really what I'm trying to say. Neil, you've written before about the scarcity of roster slots in the WNBA. How much harder is it to make a roster on a WNBA team than it is in the NBA? Yeah, it's it's significantly harder. So this is something that we looked at a couple years ago uh, where we basically looked at the number of boys and girls high school basketball players in the u.s and looked at compared that to the number of roster slots at the pro level for each league so what we found was and this was in 2018 uh we found that there were 412,407 girls basketball players in u.s high schools so that meant that since there were 157 WNBA roster slots, there were 2,627 high school girls playing basketball for every available roster slot in the pros. Uh, by comparison, there were 551,373 boys basketball players in high school, but also 540 NBA players. So there were 1,021 boys basketball players for every pro roster slot. So if you look at that, that's like... Uh, more than double the the number of uh, high school players per pro slot in girls basketball versus boys basketball, which really does speak to the the need for expansion. I think soon they they need to expand that talent pool so that good players don't go undrafted in uh, in something like this week's draft. Yeah, that has to be the next option for the WNBA, right? I know. I mean, you know, there's growing the league is you know, tricky from lots of angles and, and a lot of things have to be taken into account. We don't want to grow too fast and, you know, leave those teams out to dry. We've seen that in other pro leagues um, that are trying to expand and, and things go too fast. But I really, it does really feel like the talent pool is just so overwhelming, the number of teams that we really could we could get more teams in more cities. Uh, and I don't I don't know how. I mean, I think LeBron is probably going to own a team at some point. I sure hope so. I think that would be uh, that would be fantastic for, for the game. Um, but how soon that can happen? I just I don't know. I, it's it's I don't know if you guys have thoughts on whether leagues should do that, should really try to expand or not. I think expanding too quick and too far would be a mistake. I mean, I think it does kind of have to be baby steps a little bit and building blocks. And I think it, it starts with growing in popularity and growing in exposure and getting more media coverage. And, you know, bit by bit, I think they should add more teams. You know, there are obviously too few teams uh, right now. But at the same time, you wouldn't want to just do a big... I mean, it just doesn't make 
sense to do. I mean, look at what the salaries are at this point. It wouldn't make sense to just immediately add a bunch of teams and a bunch of players playing for nothing. I mean, granted, I'm sure those players that are getting undrafted would take it um, (laughs) because it's a pretty good job being a professional basketball player, regardless of the salary. But, you know, I would be wary of expanding too quickly. I think that makes sense. Yeah. So the the draft falling so quickly after the NCAA tournament sets up such an interesting dynamic because the tourney really does leave this, you know, huge impression, at least in our minds, if not in the minds of like every single scout. (laughs) But Jeff, which college players may have raised their profile the most with their tournament performances? Well, I think Ari McDonald did for sure. I mean, just looking at some mock drafts, she's now looking like someone who could go to one of the first five picks by the Dallas Wings who seem to have all the picks in the draft. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, she had a great tournament, obviously taking Arizona all the way to the, uh, to the final. And, you know, the knock on her is her size. I mean, I think if she's a couple inches taller, she's probably number one overall, but at her height, I think she showed what she's capable of and she can take over a game um in great defender so i think she's certainly one who who probably benefited the most yeah i was interested you know ari mcdonald for sure i was interested in charlie collier's performance in the tournament because it's sort of great yeah it's kind of the like the opposite did she lower her draft stock probably not she seems to be still the the most likely number one um in mock drafts but she she struggled against south carolina now every Everyone on the Texas team struggled against South Carolina. The whole state of Texas struggled against South Carolina in that game. So, you know, there's that. But there is some question of whether she'll be able to, to you know, really hang with the stronger women in the pro leagues than um, than in these still tough Big 12, but, but still. <laughs> so there are some teams just looking to solve a few areas of need, some going undergoing entire rebuilds. Neil, which teams could we expect to really make a move depending on the results of this draft? Well, I mean, in terms of who who might trade uh, their pick, I've seen some stuff around the Atlanta Dream who are uh, with the third pick right now. But potentially that being just an attractive trade chip for them to potentially move because, you know, they're kind of close to the cap right now. And so they might have to you know, juggle things around. In fact, I think uh, I was looking at a story at The Athletic where they said that the rookie scale for the number three pick in the draft is actually set to make more than the cap space that the Dream (laughs) currently have. So they're going to have to do something around that. And so that, to me, is why they seem uh, potentially primed to make a trade. And, And the number three pick could really net, you know, other assets down the line. Yeah, I that's a great point that we I wonder I do wonder if we'll see some movement. You know, Dallas, like you mentioned, Jeff, they do seem to have every pick. They like definitely can't take all those players and have them all on their team. They don't have the roster slot, so they'll have to make some moves. So whether they try to trade one of those picks or not, um, could be kind of fun. I do want to talk for just a second about a few amazing players who won't be drafted on Thursday. In a different world, we might see South Carolina sophomore Aaliyah Boston taken number one, or freshman Phenoms Paige Beckers or Caitlin Clark called first. But the WNBA's eligibility requirements prevent that. You can't declare until you're 22 or you have graduated from college in three years. 
Jeff, should the WNBA revisit its age requirement considering the incredible talent coming up? Or given how small the league is, is it better to keep players in college for longer? You know, these players will come out eventually and whatever year they come out, they'll have the same issue. I mean, that doesn't feel like a decision here will change that that phenomenon. I mean, there's always going to be good players going undrafted and not being able to find roster spots it, it, with this many teams. That won't change. But it does feel like the, they should give these women options to to go out early. I mean, why not? I mean, I think the benefits you'll see will be more on the NCAA side by keeping this rule. You'll see these teams <laughs> like Stanford's bringing back, you know, a lot of their team. And, and you'll I think you'll see more of these kind of dynastic teams, you know, like we saw from UConn for so long. And we'll see from UConn uh, next year because Paige Beckers will be back. Um, you won't have this kind of you know, revolving door of one and dones that you see in the in the men's side where they have one and dones come in, they have one great year and then they're gone and the team's kind of in disarray the next year. But from the player's perspective, it's pretty ridiculous that they're, you know, on the men's side, there's the one and done rule, which is already stupid. But then <laughs> on the women's side, you have to wait until you're 22. That's like so out of step with uh, not only the men's uh, rule, but also with sort of the things that we've been talking about in the show recently with players, you know, wanting more agency, wanting to be able to market themselves, monetize themselves, monetize their social followings and things like that, that, you know, it, it, it seems particularly archaic to force players to stay in. I think the NBA hasn't had this type of rule since what, like Spencer Haywood uh, challenged uh, things back in like the 70s or 80s. So to your point, Jeff, it would make the logjam of talent problem even worse by adding more players to the to the draft pool each year. Uh, and, you know, there already aren't enough spaces for everyone. But, you know, I, I still don't see how it's fair to kind of make the players stay in college longer, risk injury, uh, and, and not give them a chance to make money until they're 22. That just seems insane to me. You know, the, the, the issue of monetizing your career, being, being prevented from making money, this, this rule, the eligibility rules for women really help to reinforce the fact that the name and image and likeness, like, rules need to be changed because if if Paige Beckers can monetize her following on social media right now by doing you know promoted ads whatever um and make money from that then it's not as much of an issue then she can decide just what's best for her I think there's there's some things for like for players of all for both men and women do you need that extra year of work do you need more competition against you know kids your own age before you're going against much much stronger players um you could make that decision for yourself if it's not just about where can i make money so the ncaa like not allowing its student athletes to capitalize on their own images just continues to be ridiculous. And it's even more ridiculous when you're not even, at least Jalen Suggs on the men's side can leave school now and go to the NBA and make a lot of money. Paige Beckers, Caitlin Clark, Aaliyah Boston, they can't do that. So if they were given some other way to monetize their huge followings, because they are extremely popular, then then this rule could be at least lived with. I think right now it just is yet another thing that feels very unequal in how unequal in how these players are being treated by 
the NCAA and by their the leagues that they want to join. So with with um and forgive me if I pronounce her name wrong, Awak Kuir, the the Finnish the star. The Finnish player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she's 19. So she can she and she's playing pro already in Italy. Can she not play for that WNBA team that drafts her until she's 22? How does that work? No, there are different rules for international players, which is like another. <laughs> that doesn't see that doesn't make sense. So she can play next year at age twenty, and the the W right. the American college basketball players have to wait two more years. That doesn't make any sense. By the way, she looks like an absolute star. I don't know if you've watched her highlight reels, but she looks like she could be dominant. I mean, she hits yeah. threes. She could <laughs> and can she, dribble. She looks like Giannis, basically. <laughs> I'm so excited for the WNBA season. And what's so funny is you go so fast from the women's college basketball tournament to the to the draft to the season starting in May. It's just like bang, 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 and you get to see all these players again um, with with their teams in the WNBA. I I think it, this season is going to be amazing. I think it's going to be really fun. But yeah, there is. It's a huge. There's there's just a lot of unfairness um, around how all of this happens. And, and you're asking for trouble. You're exactly right. I don't think I think the opportunities for, you know, building your your brand and your the competition are still better in the women's college game. But, man, if you don't if if they don't watch that, there could really be people who circumvent it to go make money because why are we preventing these kids from careers and, and and because there are so few roster spots you're still gonna have a lot of great college players stay you know the full time all four yeah. years because because why would they leave if they're not a guaranteed a spot i mean it's not like you know WNBA teams can really afford to like take projects like you see in the nba where they right. they take someone who's really young and has a great skill set or great physical attributes but maybe isn't as polished or ready to play in the league and can send them, you know, keep them on the bench or put them in the G League or something like that. So I think it wouldn't affect the college game that much, except for it would affect it in the sense that you wouldn't have the star power returning. I mean, I think, you know, having Paige Beckers or Caitlin Clark there for another year is just going to help the interest in the next year's tournament. Yeah. All right. Well, the WNBA draft is on Thursday. We'll see who goes where and what happens with all of those teams. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Yeah, Sarah, yesterday was a big day in NHL circles. I'm sure you were uh, glued Mm -hmm. to the coverage. It was time for the league's annual trade deadline, the last big chance for teams to upgrade on the path to the Stanley Cup. And the NHL trade deadline is, generally speaking, one of the rare trade deadlines that actually sometimes lives up to the hype. And that's actually really saying something, considering that TSN, which is Canada's equivalent of ESPN, has a tradition of wall-to-wall coverage on deadline day. They even renamed their flagship show from Sports Center to Trade Center, both ending in RE, of course, uh, it being Canada. Uh, however, there were concerns that this year's trade deadline would supply less drama than usual for a couple of reasons. First, there 
there are these mandatory quarantines for players traded from U.S.-based teams to Canada, which until recently required players to be sidelined for 14 days upon arrival. Now it's been lowered to seven days at a special request for exemption from the Canadian government. Thankfully, they, they put that in. It was a matter of national importance. The NHL salary cap will also stay flat for not just next season, but also kind of the next few seasons. They said but when they were asked about it, I think Gary Benton was like, it'll stay flat for a while. Like it was like not at all kind of clear how long uh, it would. But that's in response to the lost revenue from not having fans attend games because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, uh, Sarah, your new favorite team, the Seattle Kraken, yep. are going to hold their expansion draft on July 21st. Meaning teams also had to worry about how adding players at the deadline would affect who they're protecting from the Kraken's tentacles this summer. Is that a weird metaphor? I think that's weird. I'll I'll just leave that. I'll just leave that there. In any event, deadline day came and indeed there were fewer trades than usual. So according to the NHL, 17 deals were made on Monday involving 26 players, which is about as half as much activity as there was last year when 32 trades were made involving 55 players. This year saw the fewest trades since 2013's deadline, when also 17 deals were made, and the fewest players moved since 2000, when 23 players were dealt. Uh, Only one trade involved a first-round pick this year. Last year, three did. Uh, So in that sense, it was a more subdued deadline than usual, as predicted by many. But in other ways, it defied expectation. According to capfriendly.com, 42% of this year's deadline trades involved a Canadian team trading with an American team, which, while it was down from last year, 46%, is higher than the average of 36% going back to 2006, which was the first year of the kind of post-lockout modern NHL. So the prospect of quarantines didn't seem to make too much difference in how teams were thinking about making swaps across the border. And among the players dealt, there were some decent names who might end up making a difference in the playoffs. Like, for instance, Taylor Hall, uh, who admittedly has been awful with the Buffalo Sabres this year, but is still just a few years removed from winning the MVP. He was shipped to the Boston Bruins, who have a 5% chance of winning the Cup. And if Taylor Hall's shooting percentage starts to resemble his 10.6% career rate rather than his 2.3% rate in Buffalo this year, watch out for the Bruins. That would be like super sad, right? For the Sabres if like if he's suddenly really and, good with the and Bruins. Super in keeping. I yeah. definitely can see a situation <laughs> in which he is suddenly just like way better on that's the Bruins at, at this point. Everything is sad with the Sabres this year. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I think what's true. going on is that they see the Bills doing better and they're like, well, we have to keep equilibrium here and just get <laughs> real sad. Otherwise, yeah. people of Buffalo might get too happy, and that that's not we allowed. We can't have that. The yep. law of conservation of sadness in <laughs> Buffalo. Uh, but there are also some other players uh, that might prove interesting in the playoffs that were traded. So uh, here are players that had at least three goals above replacement per 82 team games being dealt to teams with at least a 1% chance of winning the Cup. Jordy Ben to the Jets, Jeff Carter to the Penguins, Carl Soderberg to the Avalanche, Eric Gustafson to the Canadiens, Matthias Janmark to the Golden Knights, and just a few days earlier, Kyle Palmieri and Travis Zajac went from your Devils, Jeff, to the New York Islanders. 
those could end up making a splash. But I think the most interesting deal of the day happened between the Capitals and the Red Wings in which Washington picked up Anthony Mantha, who's having a down year in 2021, but he scored 25 goals as recently as 2019 on a truly bad Detroit team that we may or may not have talked about on the show in a rabbit hole about bad hockey teams before. But to get Mantha, the Caps traded Jacob Verana, who statistically has been much better this season, plus another serviceable winger, plus a first-round pick, plus a second-round pick uh, to get Anthony Mantha. Usually we talk about contending teams picking up the best players from bad teams at the deadline, kind of buyers versus sellers. And Washington does have a 6% chance of winning the Cup. That'll probably go up after picking up Mantha. But the best goals above replacement player moved at the deadline was Verana, and he was sent from a team that had a 6% chance to win the Cup to a team that has a 0% chance to even make the playoffs. Now, I should note that Mantha's possession metrics are better than Verana's, so it's a more even comparison than pure goals above replacement would suggest. But still, kind of a fascinating swap between two players and, and certainly sets up Detroit for the long run with those uh, those draft picks. But anyway, I think trade deadlines are fun. There's usually something for super fans to pick over, even if forces are working against big deals, especially right now in the current landscape of sports. I think the hockey deadline might be my favorite, or at least it's right up there with uh, something like baseball or what I like to call uh, having my eyes glued to Woj's Twitter feed, (laughs) which is essentially what the NBA trade deadline is. But I wanted to ask you guys, what are your favorite trade deadlines in sports? And tell me why. Baseball, for sure. Because you get like really random dudes on, you know, closing out the season uh, with teams that, you know, I, I love that. And I love looking back at who played for like two months on a team before then becoming a free agent somewhere else or whatever. Who could forget Manny Machado on the Dodgers? <laughs> that, right? <laughs> exactly. The NBA one. Well, this year I found it annoying um, and like anticlimactic. I mean, actually, I think I always find it annoying because it's a lot of work. Uh, but this year was like there was not the the guys moved were mostly not that interesting with a couple of exceptions like you know Aaron Gordon to the Nuggets but most most of it was kind of boring so um yeah baseball maybe I should I guess I should have paid attention to the hockey trade deadline except I didn't know any of those people were on the teams they were on so now yeah now, you don't now it's not, all new to me <laughs> you're not gonna really start digging in until the Kraken start digging I think that's in right. and getting yep. their tentacles in other teams <laughs> as they say baseball deadline I feel like is on its way out I don't think it's going to be what it was in the past. I mean, we're seeing all these guys locked up, you know, with free agency less of a thing now and fewer guys up on these, you know, unrestricted free agent years and all these guys being locked to these long term deals. I just and also the postseason when it's easy. I think that's a real concern when it's easier to make the playoffs. I just don't think you're going to see teams doing these kind of big swings at the deadline. But I, I could be wrong. I mean, what do you think about that, Neil? Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, uh, especially about the fact that fewer guys are up for free agency. Like, you need to have that. Yeah. I think it just happened by accident that, like, they put in a trade deadline back in the day because they didn't want a situation like what comes up in many fantasy leagues where, like, <laughs> someone is totally out of the running and just sells off their, their best players, perhaps in exchange for Chipotle meals. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> not so that they that didn't has want, ever happened. <laughs> not that that's ever happened. But so they didn't want that to happen. So they were like, okay, we need to pick a time uh, where we just cut off roster movement. Teams have to actually make a choice between like, okay, do we sell off? Well, we still might have a chance to make the playoffs. So, you know, we don't want to dump all of our best players to the Yankees for peanuts. But at the same time, 
an unintended consequence of that plus free agency is you do get that nice delineation between buyers and sellers and the sellers are, you know, bad teams that have guys that are due up for free agency and they want to deal off guys uh, so that they can actually get something in exchange for them. That's like kind of a nice part of the season narrative ecosystem that came up as a result of, of having that. And so, yeah, if you don't have those free agents on teams that are clearly out of the playoffs and if it is easier to make the playoffs and you don't have teams that are sort of like oh we're sellers like let's just start trading off everything that's not nailed down then it's going to inherently limit the the interest in the trade deadline and i do think that that's like kind of an unintended uh consequence of some of these other changes at sort of the larger macro level of of the game i wonder how much player development has to do with that too because as teams get better at evaluating their talent and developing their own, you know, drafted players within their own farm systems, you know, they might be less willing to part with prospects, which also then really affects how those trades can work. Um, you know, if you're not willing to give away those guys, then you're not going to be, you know, another team's not going to want to trade with you. So, yeah, it really is all like it's one of those unintended consequences that from like it has a lot of unintended consequences all in one all in one pool. So it's it'll be interesting to see what happens this year, especially in front of a new CBA. Hopefully, maybe a new CBA will come um, and just just to see what movement there is. Yeah, I mean, it'll, we won't, really won't know until 2023 when um, baseball comes back post CBA from its strike from its season long <laughs> strike. Um, <laughs> we just bake that in as fact now. <laughs> but uh, to answer the original question, I think I'm going to go with the NBA because the NHL, while there's always a like, it's interesting if you're really in the weeds on the league, but just this sort of strange alchemy it takes to build a good hockey team. You, it's not really about amassing star power and like it is in the NBA. So some of these trades are significant, but they also are, you know, not splashy in terms of the the name the name value that's being moved around except taylor hall except taylor hall but <laughs> except taylor, hall's, taylor hall's on his uh 19th team in 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 five months so <laughs> you know well, one of those maybe... being the devils <laughs> yeah maybe that's why i was so disappointed with the nba trade deadline this year because it wasn't as like splashy as it sometimes is i mean nba free agency is definitely just pure madness um every year now and so i expect that from the trade deadline too so i was a little let down by by the caliber of players involved in trades not to besmirch the names of any, of any of the players yeah sorry that, that, that is very true that you know we've gotten so spoiled by free agency and just like the titanic mammoth names that can be moved to different teams that yeah when it's like when it's players doing it in this era of player empowerment they can like go wherever they want there's not like considerations like do we balance this trade how does this work right, do right. both gms agree to it it's just like oh Kevin Durant wants to play in Brooklyn. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, all right, that happened. Uh, so I think that, like, yeah, it's a, the the there's a lot more grease on the wheels of making things happen during free agency than there is in trade deadlines. And yet we still look at Shams, we look at Woj, we kind of glue ourselves to those same Twitter feeds. Perhaps some of us even have like uh, Twitter lists of people to follow during NBA free agency. <laughs> 
that then we also look at during the trade deadline. But yeah, it's like inherently just not going to give us the same level of Woj bombs and sham bombs uh, <laughs> that, that we really crave. I feel like we, we need them uh, and, what and has it's just we can't us? have them. Yeah, we have, a, we have problems, I think, is what the real, the real takeaway oh, there deep, is. <laughs> Deep-seated psychological <laughs> problems. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Well, thank you for that rabbit hole, Neil. That will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. 